Mark chapter 5, 21 through 43. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he, followed, and, and he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Those of you who grew up in the 60s and 70s, who were kids in elementary schools in that era, you know that teachers would use slideshows. They'd have the little, every time it beeped, you got to, advance the slide one. And those of you who are kids now, in your classroom you have smart boards. So the teacher just touches the board and it's on the internet and they can pull up YouTube videos and and all of that. But for those of us who were lucky enough to grow up in the 80s and 90s, we had overhead projectors in the classroom. And the overhead projectors, the teacher would put up a transparency this, this page on the, on the projector and teach from that transparency. And they'd put it on backwards or upside down and they'd have to fix it. So the teacher would take this transparency and I can, I can remember in science class when we were doing human anatomy, the teacher would put up 
the transparency of the human skeleton, and then you could layer another transparency on top of that. And then you could layer another one on top of that. And so they would put the skeleton down, and then they would put uh, the nervous system on top of the skeleton, and then put the, the respiratory system on top of that, the circulatory system, organs, muscles, and then finally the skin. So you'd have these layers of the human, human anatomy. And I want to apply that idea to today's passage. I couldn't find an overhead projector, so you're going to have to use your imagination. But think of, think of this passage in, in layers. Mark writes really carefully. He's, he's the shortest gospel. His gospel is the shortest. And so he's, he's very careful with what he says. He's very precise in his wording. And he's very brief. He just continually moves Forward. He packs a lot into his accounts of Jesus. And, and what, Je- what Mark is doing in his gospel is he's presenting us with this 3D image of Jesus. And it serves us well as we're reading Mark's gospel, and especially as I'm preaching through it week by week, it serves us well to pull apart that image, to, to break it down into distinct layers so as we pull it apart, just like when in your anatomy class, you, you pull apart each system so that you can better understand the human body as a whole, I want to do that with this, this morning's passage. I want to take a few different layers of the passage and pull them apart and then put it all back together at the end of the passage so that it helps us to better understand who Jesus is, what he's doing, and what it means for us in this passage. So layer one, think of this layer as the skeleton, this is, this is the backbone of the entire book, and this is, this is what this passage means and what every passage in Mark means. That first layer is, again, I've said this many, many weeks now, this is Mark's legal case that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Remember, that's the whole point of the gospel. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark is like a lawyer trying to make this claim about who Jesus is. He wants us as his readers to see that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of David. If you're in our adult Sunday school class, this this man from the line of David, this promised king who is also God's own son. He wants us to see that. And and so we're coming to the end today of this four-part Uh, little vignette to this little mini spot within Mark, this four-part story of Jesus showing himself as the creator, showing himself as the God of the universe, the one who's in charge of everything. So a few weeks ago, we saw Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41, Jesus calms the storm. And in that story, we see that Jesus is the creator, the Lord of nature. He can talk to wind and waves and they obey him because he owns them. And then last week, we looked at the story of Jesus casting out the unclean spirits from the man in the country of the Gerasenes. And and there we saw that Jesus is the king over all the earth, not just Israel. He's the king over all spheres, visible and invisible, physical and spiritual. He's, he's king over all of it. And so when he speaks to an unclean spirit, that unclean spirit must obey him. And, and now today, we're looking at these two, two miracles, two signs, the healing of the diseased woman 
and the raising of the little girl from the dead. So Jesus heals a woman and raises a girl from the dead, showing that Jesus is king over sickness and disease and even over life and death. So the, the raising of the little girl is the climax of these four stories. Jesus can calm a storm. Jesus can cast out unclean spirits. Jesus can heal a woman who has a disease. And Jesus can even raise someone from the dead because he is the Christ, the Son of God. And so, so Mark, as a, as a good lawyer, he's just piling the evidence on. Exhibit A, exhibit B, exhibit C, exhibit D. He, he wants his readers to have just mountains of evidence backing up what he wants us to see. How much evidence do I have to give you? Look at what Jesus has done. Look at what Jesus has said. There's no one like him. He is who he says he is. So that's that skeleton. That's that first layer that really holds every other layer together. Everything we read in Mark is under that, under that umbrella, held together by those, those common themes. And then the second layer, which we're going to focus a little bit more on, Jesus, Mark is pointing out Jesus' power and ability in dead-end, no-hope situations. The, all four of these stories has, has been this stark picture of humans, sinful men and women, weak, broken, needy men and women coming to the end of themselves, hitting a spot where they realize we have no hope. It is over for us. No one can control nature or calm a storm. When the disciples are in the boat and the storm is raging, it says the boat is already filling and they cry out to Jesus. They don't cry out to Jesus to save them. They cry out to Jesus and say, teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? They don't even expect Jesus to do anything about it. There's, here's a storm. We're people in this storm. There's clearly nothing we can do about it. We're all dead. There is no hope for us. And Jesus speaks into that situation and, and saves them. There's no hope, but Jesus is here, so there's hope. And then this, this man with the unclean spirits. We, we saw this last week. No one is able to subdue him. No one is able to chain him. No one is able to help him. This man's life is over. This man has no hope. This man is lost. This man, his life is a living nightmare, a living hell. He is dead. He is a dead man walking in the, among the tombs. Everyone else has written him off. He can't save himself. No one else can save him. And then Jesus walks in. And Jesus casts out the unclean spirits. Jesus heals this man's brokenness. Jesus makes this man new. We just sang, you called my name and I ran out of that grave. And that's what Jesus does for this man with the unclean spirits. This man had no hope and then Jesus walked in. And that's what we see this morning here as well. You have these two hopeless situations. No one was able to help this diseased woman. She'd been sick for 12 years and no one thinks you can raise the dead. So first we have this, this uh, story of the little girl. The, the way the passage is 
made. It's like an Oreo. You've got the little girl story on the front, the little girl story on the back, and the, the nice white cream in the middle of this, this woman with the disease. So we start with the little girl and we end with the little girl. Jesus gets off the boat and it says, one of the rulers of the synagogue came to him, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at Jesus's feet. So Jesus is the father of this sick, excuse me, Jairus is the father of this sick little girl. He's a ruler of the synagogue. And and that means that he's a local Jewish leader. Every community would have a synagogue. And the synagogue was the place where people would go to learn about the law and study the law and obey the law and worship, right? It's It's this community center. And it's run by these local leaders. And this man was likely a Pharisee. Most of the synagogue rulers were Pharisees. So here's this this wealthy, accomplished, well-educated man, this community leader, Jairus, and he's, he's a Pharisee. And if you've been paying attention to Mark, up to this point in Mark, every interaction Jesus has had with a Pharisee was negative. The Pharisees have set themselves up in opposition to Jesus. At best, the Pharisees have questioned Jesus. When when Jesus forgives the sin of the paralyzed man in chapter 2, they say, who can forgive sins but God alone? They're, They're questioning Jesus at best. At worst, they're in direct animosity with Jesus. They're ready to destroy Jesus because he is not... He is not operating according to their game plan, their rule book. They accuse Jesus of being filled with Satan. Jesus casts out demons by the prince of demons. The the Pharisees do not get along with Jesus. And you have this man, Jairus, who's part of the, the crowd of the Pharisees, and we would expect that Jairus would hold Jesus at arm's length, that Jesus would be slow to move toward Jesus, Jairus would be slow to move toward Jesus, that Jairus would be questioning and and at odds with Jesus. But he has a little daughter who's dying and he doesn't care. He is not interested in politics. He is not interested in social standing. He is not interested in religious tradition. He runs to Jesus and falls at his feet. Verse 22. Jairus, seeing Jesus, fell at his feet and implored him earnestly. That's the same thing that the demon-possessed man did. Runs to Jesus, falls at his feet, and starts begging. You have this demon-possessed man on the bottom of the social totem pole, completely an outcast, runs to Jesus, falls at his feet, starts begging, completely exposes himself. This is is not a proud position that this demon-possessed man is in. And now you have this man at the top of the social totem pole doing the same thing, running to Jesus, falling at Jesus' feet, begging Jesus, help me, need strips us. When we come to a spot in our life where we say, I have no hope. I have nothing. 
I can't do anything. I have tried everything. It makes us more ready to come to Jesus. So this this man, this wealthy, influential, well-respected, well-educated man doesn't care about any of those things. He just needs to get to Jesus because his little daughter is at the brink of death. And so he will do anything to get to Jesus, to have Jesus' help. So, again, need strips us. We can and we should have health insurance and life insurance and homeowner's insurance and car insurance and dental insurance and umbrella policies and retirement accounts and emergency funds and strong social networks and healthy diets and consistent exercise routines. We should do all of those things. But none of that will save us. And on this side of eternity, we will not fully avoid suffering and pain and loss. We are wildly vulnerable people. We are so vulnerable as human creatures. We are one phone call away. And where will we go when life goes wrong? To whom will we go when life goes wrong? This man did the right thing because he ran to Jesus. And, and the story of the diseased woman is the same. So, so here's this man named Jairus whose daughter is dying. It says, Jesus, come lay hands on her so that she may be well and live. Verse 24, and he went with him. So Jesus agrees to go with this father. And then on their way to the man's house, verse 25, there was a woman a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. So this woman has been sick for 12 years. And what has she done for those 12 years? She has suffered much under many physicians. She has gone to every doctor in Israel. And remember, this is 2,000 years ago. Doctors then are not what doctors are now. So this, this woman has tried every medical treatment that is available. It says that she has spent all that she has. So this disease has caused a loss of all her finances. She has spent every penny to try to get well. She's gone to every doctor to try to get well. And what is the result of all of her efforts to get better? She was no better, but rather grew worse. This woman's life is over. She will not get better on her own. There is no one that can help her. There is nothing that she can do. She is at her end. Verse 27. But she had heard the reports about Jesus. Twelve years she's been sick. She's done everything she can to get better. Nothing, will, nothing works, but she hears about this man named Jesus. And when people get in this man's presence, good things happen. Paralyzed people walk. Sick people are made well. Demon-possessed people are set free. And so she thinks, I got to go to Jesus. I need to be in Jesus' presence. And she, she even says, if I could just touch him, even the hem of his garment, I will be made well. And that's, that's a little allusion to uh, Moses when he sees the glory of the Lord. It's, 
God hides Moses in the cleft of the rock and he sees just his backside, just the hem of his garment. So again, Jesus is God. So if I can just be in Jesus's presence, I will be made well. So these are people who are at their very end. Their life is a dead end. They have no hope. But there's a man named Jesus. And so that's where we are as well. And look at, look at how Jesus treats both of these people. Verse 23, the man calls the girl, my little daughter. He, you can hear the, the affection in his, in his words. He loves his girl. And, and we know later that she's 12 years old. So when he says, my little daughter, she's not physically little, but he's her little girl. He, she, she loves He loves his daughter. So he calls her my little daughter. And then verse 34, what does Jesus call this woman? He said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. And then verse 35, when they go to the man's house and the, the girl is dead, it says, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? So you have here three instances of daughter. And this is, this is, a way that Mark is communicating that Jesus cares. Jesus understands us. Jesus steps into our situations. Jesus does not hold us at arm's length. Jesus knows that our loved ones are precious to us. Jesus knows that our own lives and our bodies are precious to us. This man's little girl mattered to him. This woman's sick body mattered to her. And because it mattered to them, it mattered to Jesus. Jesus doesn't tell us, go be warm and well-fed. Good luck to you. I hope it turns out well for you. No, Jesus comes with us. The man says, come with me to to heal my daughter. And so Jesus goes with Jesus is not a far-off, aloof God, but an intimately involved God. Jesus steps into our lives, steps into our hopes, steps into our fears, steps into our desires. Jesus cares about this man and his little daughter. Jesus cares about this hopeless woman and calls her daughter. He's close to us. He knows, he cares. And I wanna, I wanna say something here too about Jesus's, Jesus's character. Think about his limitless patience and energy in these stories. The beginning of, of chapter four, well, so think of Jesus's limitless patience and energy. Mark's gospel has this relentless pace immediately, 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 immediately. And, and I don't think that that's something that Mark is projecting on Jesus but I think rather that it's something that he is observing from Jesus's ministry and then representing in his writing style. You get the sense from all of the gospels and specifically Mark that the pace of Jesus's ministry was so fast and so nonstop. And Jesus gets so few breaks during, during his ministry. So beginning of chapter four, Jesus teaches this large overwhelming crowd by the sea. The, the crowd is so big and they're pressing in so much that he has to step into a boat to get a little space. He teaches this big crowd and then he stays on the boat and crosses the sea 
And while he's crossing the sea, this storm comes up, wakes him up, and he calms the storm so he doesn't get any rest on the boat on its way over. And then he steps off the boat in the country of the Gerasenes, and he's immediately met by this man with an unclean spirit. And he, he heals the man, and then he's quickly pushed back on the boat by the crowds. So steps off the boat, here's this demon-possessed man, heals the demon-possessed man, the crowds come, and they're afraid of Jesus, and they push him back onto the boat, and he crosses back over to the other side, back into Israel. And now, Jesus gets back to Galilee, verse 21, when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him. They meet him on the shore. Before he even steps foot off the boat onto the beach, he's rushed upon. They come quickly to him. And here's the crowd rushes on him. This desperate father comes to him begging, begging for help. And then on his way, he's already on his way to help somebody. And this diseased woman grabs him. People only ever come to Jesus with needs, demands, urgent pleadings, messiness, brokenness, pain, grief, fear, constantly bombarding Jesus, and he responds to all of it perfectly. I have such a low capacity. I am so easily overwhelmed. I'm quickly tired. I am prone to be grumpy and sullen when I'm overwhelmed. And hallelujah, Jesus is not like me. And Jesus is not like you. You get tired. You, you need your me time. You need to veg out at the end of the day. Jesus is God. Jesus has capacity for us. Jesus has time for us. Jesus has patience for us. Jesus has energy to meet our needs. There's never a bad time to go to Jesus. He will respond well to you. He will not be tired of you. He will not be frustrated by you. He will not be annoyed by you. Even if you come to him with the same need a thousand times, he will receive you. Jesus has limitless patience and energy when we have no hope, when we hit a dead end. Third layer of this passage. So Jesus is demonstrating that he's the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus is showing that there is hope. When, when we hit a dead end, there's hope in him. And then this third layer, Jesus makes the unclean clean. So both of these people, this diseased woman and then this dead little girl, are both ceremonially unclean. In, in Leviticus 15, we read about ceremonial cleanness and uncleanness. And, and in light of that chapter, this woman who had been sick for 12 years was ceremonially unclean. She, she needed to keep herself separate from others. Because of her disease, because of her sickness, 
other people, if they came into contact with her, they would be made spiritually unclean or ceremonially unclean just like she was. And so not only does she have the pain and the grief and the stress and the anxiety of being sick, her sickness separates her from other people. There's a loneliness to this. There's a loss of relationship because of her sickness, because of her ceremonial uncleanness. She cannot go to the temple because of her disease. And that ceremonial uncleanness in the Old Testament is symbolic of, it's not equivalent to, this woman is not morally unclean because of her disease, but it's a picture of all of our moral uncleanness. This ceremonial uncleanness is a picture of our moral uncleanness before God. This woman must be healed, washed, and declared clean before she is fit for contact with others and before she can have access to the temple courts. This woman is unclean. And verse 35, after the little girl dies, her corpse also becomes unclean. The family members who handle the corpse for burial are themselves unclean for a period, and they must wash themselves before they can be declared ceremonially clean again. But those rules do not hold with Jesus. He turns them on their head. This unclean woman touches clean Jesus, and she does not make Jesus unclean, but rather he makes her clean. If she touches anyone else, they become unclean. But if she touches Jesus, she becomes clean. And this this dead girl who will make others unclean through touch is touched by Jesus and springs back to life. In the Old Testament, if you touch me in your uncleanness, I must go through an ordeal to make myself clean again. And it's true of Jesus as well. So Isaiah 53, Isaiah says this about the coming Messiah, the, man, the suffering servant. Isaiah says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And verse, verse four, it says, surely he has borne our griefs. That word griefs can also be translated illnesses. Surely he has borne our illnesses and carried our sorrows pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. His wounds make us clean. His wounds heal us. So Jesus goes through an ordeal to, be, to make us clean. And so you can almost see in this passage Jesus bearing the illness of this woman. Jesus bearing the death of this girl and accruing it to his account to be paid later at the cross. So so you can almost ask, on what basis can you heal this woman, Jesus? Who are you to take away this woman's disease? Who are you to declare this woman clean? Who are you to bring this girl back to life, Jesus? 
Who are you to reverse the curse of sin that leads to death? And Jesus says, I'm the servant that suffers. I'm the one who bears these illnesses. I'm the one who takes on this sin. I'm the one who carries the penalty of your, of your sin. Through my wounds, you are made well. Through my death, you can live again. So what Jesus is doing here in chapter five is, is anticipating what he's gonna do at the end of the gospel when he's crushed, nailed to the tree, killed and buried. Jesus will be made sick for this woman to be well. Jesus will die for this little girl to live. And he does the same things for us if we trust him. And then our last layer, Jesus is not a genie in a bottle or a God who can be manipulated. There's a, there's a theme running through these verses of if we can just do the right thing in Jesus' presence, it will work well for, for us. So think, think of paganism. When, when they're about to journey, when, when someone's about to go on a journey across the sea, they better make an offering to the God of the sea so that they have a safe trip. If someone's about to plant their crops, they better make an offering to the God of the harvest so that they would have a good harvest. If you get married, you better make an offering to the goddess of fertility so that you can have a child. We gotta do the right things to appease the gods. And if, if you do something wrong, you better say the magic word so that the gods don't strike you down. And so here you have this man whose daughter is sick and he says, just touch my daughter and she'll be made well. And you have this woman, if I can just touch Jesus, she will be made well. And then Jesus speaks to this little girl and the little girl rises from the dead. And Mark takes efforts to show us there's no magic here. There's nothing secret. There's no secret knowledge that you need to gain in order to appease Jesus. Jesus' power and ability is not magic to be exploited, but it's part of who he is as our creator and redeemer. We come to him and benefit from him by faith, not by actions or secret words. So verse 23, my little daughter is dying. Come lay hands on her. So she, be me, so she may be made well and live. Verse 28, if I touch his garments, I'll be made well. Verse 41, he takes the dead girl by the hand. He touches the girl by the hand and says, little girl, arise. And it's not magic. It's simply the authoritative voice of the God of the universe. Someone says to Jesus, if you will, you can make me clean. Jesus touches the person, I will be clean. Tells the paralyzed man, take your bed, rise, take your bed, and go. Tells the storm, peace, be still. In, in John, tells Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth. And, and Lazarus comes forth. Touching or being touched by Jesus, speaking to or being spoken to by Jesus does not work because we say or do the right thing or because Jesus has some magic quality. It works because Jesus is God. Jesus, the woman says, if I can just touch his garment, I'll be made well. And Jesus says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Your faith that I am who I am is what makes you well. 
The little girl is dead, and Jesus tells the father and mother, do not fear, only believe. Trust me. I'm not about to do magic. I am God. Trust me. Come to me with your needs. I will help you. So so Jesus isn't manipulated in these passages. He's showing his divine freedom in these passages. So those are the layers. Those are are the layers of of what we see in this text. And we could have said a lot more, but I want to conclude with this. We're coming to the end of, of this section and we're actually going to take a break from Mark now. Starting next week, we're going to do an Advent series for the month of December. So we're going to focus on the incarnation and Advent. So, so we're going to be done with Mark for a little while. But I hope that you've seen by this point as we keep looking at Jesus from these different angles, as Mark keeps giving us more and more evidence of who Jesus is. I hope that you see that Mark is not only making this claim that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, but he's telling us that it's good news. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus is is the promised king, God in the flesh, living among, relating to sinful, broken humanity. These no-hope, dead-end situations are miraculously reversed by Jesus. And when those who are ceremonially or spiritually or morally unclean, when they come into contact with Jesus, that uncleanness is taken away and they become clean. Mark's arguing for that. And, and that's, Mark, Mark wants us to know this is empirically, literally, fundamentally true. He's he's appealing to our minds in in his gospel. Use your brains. Use your reason. Look at who Jesus is. Believe him here. Believe it because it's true. But it's also amazing. It's also glorious. It's also surprising and beautiful and good that it's true. So he's appealing to our minds, but he's also appealing to our hearts and our emotions Don't just believe that it's true. Want it to be true. Rejoice that it is true. It's not just true that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. It is the best news in the entire world for you. We don't just believe that Jesus is the Messiah. We rejoice that Jesus is the Messiah. We don't just believe that he is our Lord and Savior. We love him for it. And so so next week, we start this Advent series, and the title of the series is, Oh, Come, Let Us Adore Him. Don't just remember Christmas this year. Adore Jesus for coming, becoming flesh, living among us, becoming our Savior to take away our sins. Love him for it. Let's pray. Father Jesus, there is so much complexity in Jesus. There is so much to see in the Gospels. There is so much to meditate on when we look at Jesus. Every passage can just be pulled apart and examined and studied. Books can be written about Jesus. There's so much to see, but Lord, what we want to see as we examine all of these parts 
We want to see the beauty and the goodness and the faithfulness and the truth of Christ. And we want our hearts to be deeply transformed as we, as we come to him, as we fall on our feet and beg him to save us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.